We're going to turn back here to, back to the, the book of Lamentations as we hear God speaking to us from his word. Uh, let's pray in this time here as we ask God's blessing as we are all listeners here and that we would hear, uh, not my voice, but that we would hear the voice of God here from his word. Lord God, we come before you needing to hear your word. Your word opens up our hearts. It shows us who we are. It reaches into our experiences. And we pray then that it would continue to do so again today. As it always, it never comes back void. You always do your work here. And so we beg then that your spirit would be doing his work in this time. That your spirit would be upon the, the, myself, the man preaching here. That you'd forgive his sins. And that you would be using him to, uh, to preach this word carefully. Father, we pray that we would also see Jesus here. As Jesus, your son, uh, reveals you, Father, perfectly. And so we don't want to just see you. We want to see Jesus. We pray that we would see him as being more believable and more beautiful than we did before. And live in our hopes, even in a passage of lament like we have here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're week two of the book of Lamentations uh, this week, so we are in uh, Lamentations chapter two. This is the word of God. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation he has has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar. Disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to the lament. and They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. 
The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their, mother, on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this a city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised... My enemy destroyed. Amen. We had in our New Testament reading this morning this beautiful vision from Revelation 21. And we continue on with, even with Revelation 22 there. This beautiful vision, right, of, of, of I will wipe away every tear from every eye, says the Lord, right? No more tears. A, a place of peace and goodness and beauty Eternal, right? The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, adorned as a bride. Right? The, the presence of God dwelling with his people, right? Revelation 22 continues on of no more, no more lamps are necessary. The sun and moon aren't necessary because we will live by the light, the light of the Lord dwelling among us. And there is, there is the, the river of God flowing from the throne of God, Watering the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. This beautiful, hopeful, wonderful picture. It's an ending that we long for. 
It puts all of the happy endings that we know in all of our other stories to shame. It is a real ending that is already written just as sure as Christ is in glory at this moment. But we have a longing for it. Our longing for it is because of the sadness that we have in life right now. In fact, sadness would actually be an understatement, wouldn't it? The drama of the story continues to play out right before us, right? The terrible awfulness of life here is observed as we go through trudging and looking forward to that, that vision someday. And Lamentations, the book of Lamentations here, reckons with the whole biblical storyline. We have the storyline of creation, God creating everything, fall, right? The, the, the whole world coming into its fallen nature, its fallen state as we know right now because of the sin of Adam. God's promise of redemption then. And then we look ahead to the idea of new creation. And so this story here, or Lamentations, gives shape to our expression of living in a post-fall world. We are in the redemption act of the story, but yet the finale of new creation isn't yet here, though there is an overlap. So it means that pain and suffering is still real. And so we're left still to mourn and to lament, even with that hope and promise. Now I want to sit back here a moment and think about uh, an overview of biblical lament that we talked about from last week. If you were with us, uh, great, you get, you're getting this again. If you weren't with us, then this is, uh, this is a little bit of what we went over last week. And the heart of lament we talked about is complaint. Complaint, we said, oftentimes is generally thought of negatively, right? Of, of whining, of, of entitlement, that idea, just deal with it, grit your teeth and get through it. But that's not what biblical complaint is. Biblical complaint, when, in reference to lament, is crying out to God against the status quo. Biblical complaint knows God's faithfulness. It knows his promises, but it looks at life and, and it's in the present circumstances about who God is and how I see life, and they seem incongruent with each other. Lament happens as we offer complaint to God for not seemingly appearing as he's promised to be. And we're given license to lament. We're, li- we're given license for crying out to God, even with questioning. Right? Our, our lament and our complaint is frequently wrapped up in a question. The question's like, why? Why, God? How? How is this happening? Where? Where are you? It's not wantonly a, or a, a, a questioning or coercing here in, in, uh, to have him act according to our own image of who he is. But it's questioning why he seems to be absent. It's questioning of how, why are you not acting according to your promise or character from what I can see? We're given license to, to lament. We have a whole book here of lamentation. We have a whole genre of psalms that are devoted to lament. Jesus himself lamented on the cross. We, we are given license to lament, but also to remember who we're expressing that lament to. We're, we're expressing lament to a holy God, a transcendent God, but yet a knowable God. God who we can, who's questioned, but not to be cursed, though. A God to be questioned, but not to be cursed. So let's again look back here at the the context of what's happening in Lamentations. It's the suffering that is at the center here is of Jerusalem. 
or of Zion, as, it's, as she's most frequently called here, because Zion is a special reference to uh, the, 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 the name referring to relationship with God. And Zion is personified as a woman. Last week we talked about her as Lady Zion. Here it's a little bit different in this, in this one, because Lamentations has five different reflections, five different um, elegies on the pain of this event here. And so it takes a little slightly different image here of the, of the daughter of Zion. So call her Lady Zion and call her Miss Zion. I think there's something powerful to that because it puts a face and a name to the anguish that was suffered. Thinks of it of not just the destruction of a, of a city, but the destruction of a person. And it allows us to put ourselves in her position to learn from her, to use her lament as ours. Her anguish and lament is her destruction. All right, Babylon came in. They destroyed the city. They lay it to waste. The walls and the buildings were all destroyed. People were killed. Children that we read here were killed. Survivors were left destitute in the streets. The temple was destroyed, the visible place of where God, God dwelled with them. And so they think, they're thinking, where is God in all of this? Is he with us? Is he for us? We saw the city from afar in Lamentations 1. And we were invited to enter and observe. And now in Lamentations 2, we begin to follow the writer through the city. And we begin to look around at the carnage firsthand. We see the people suffering in the streets. We hear the cries of the orphaned children who are hungry. Mothers wailing as they clutch their little ones who are both dead and alive. And the heart of their questioning... It's not, where's the Lord? Rather, it's, is the Lord our enemy? He seems to be acting like it. Sometimes God seems like an enemy. Or only enemies are this ruthless as we read. The children dead in the streets here in Jerusalem are, the, are also the children dead in Ukraine and Gaza. The children who are dead in dumpsters behind the abortion office. Or the children who are dead as they're cradled in their arms as, of, of, as stillborn children. The buildings that are demolished here are flattened from earthquakes, destroyed from wildfires. They are homes that are foreclosed after a lost job. The temple destroyed as God seemingly distant with unanswered prayers. God, are you our enemy? Your wrath lies heavy upon us. As we go through the, the, the lament here, Lamentations 2, we're going we're gonna to be confronted by this suffering. But we also need to find comfort in the suffering. And it leads us to crying out as well. And so first, we're being confronted, and particularly confronted with God's wrath. God, are you my enemy? Right? Are you our enemy here? Well, we have here thinking about, we're being, being confronted with God's wrath. Uh, it opens similar to Lamentations 1, how it did. With that word, how. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Right, that word, how, it's the expression of astonishment. How did this happen? And also, how is it re- re- provokes reflection. How? How did this happen? Because we see Miss Zion laid low here. Pulled down by the Lord from her position of glory. 
and now found in the dirt that's been muddied with blood. She's been cast from heaven's splendor and her privileged position there down to the earth. She's been now brought under dark clouds, concealing the face of the Lord from her. His presence once planted within her as feet propped up on a, on a footstool, but now gone. All this here, it says, done by the Lord in his anger. The intro here, how, from Lamentations 1, we have that, that it introduces some similarities and differences that we have from Lamentations 1 to 2. Both of them attribute Zion's suffering to the Lord. But there's a key difference. Lamentations 1, if you remember, was all about the Lord did this to us because we sinned. Right? And just very, very open and forthright about that. Yeah, this happened to us. God did this to us because we sinned. But Lamentations 2, we hear over and over, oh, this is, this is what the Lord has done to us. This is what the Lord has done to us. But you know what we're missing? The sin of Miss Zion. It is minimized while the Lord's wrath is emphasized. Right? Just look through, scroll through like the first half of, of this here. We had the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. In his wrath, he's broken down. You know, he has brought down, he has cut down in fierce anger. He has withdrawn his right hand. He has bent his bow on and on and on all the way through verse 9. He's treating her as an enemy, as the object of his anger and his wrath without any direct mention of her sin as being a contributing factor. In these words here, the Lord is pouring out his wrath upon Miss Zion. And we're given little reasons as to why. Does this make us a little bit squeamish? Does it unsettle us? It was a matter of fact for the writer and for Miss Zion as well. These groans, as we consider them here, they challenge our categories for suffering. There's the age-old questions that we've had of trying to figure out the reasons for suffering and pain. Is it my sin? Is it my personal sin? As we said last week before, not necessarily. I remember John chapter 9. Jesus, there is the, the man who's born blind that Jesus and the disciples see. And the disciples say, well, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Jesus said, neither. That's not why. Right? We, we have we, th- these age-old questions of trying to, to figure out. right? And we oft, oftentimes have this pastoral attempt of, of wanting to shield God. right? It's not necessarily due to your sin because we're trying to be pastoral and not, not overburdening people. No, it's not what you did, and that's true. But we also have, on the other hand, this similar attempt to, to protect God, to not make him into some sort of moral monster. And so what do we make of this here? Her pain is clearly due to God's wrath. But before you make a judgment, though, it's more complicated than a direct correlation of his wrath and an individual's sin. Again, John chapter 9 with Jesus and the man born blind. But we can think also, too, of in the book of Job, the person of Job, right? Job is described as a righteous man, but he had everything taken away from him. All of his wealth, his home, his sons and daughters, his health. We can think also of Jesus. 
Jesus is the only perfectly righteous man ever, but yet he's described as being well acquainted with grief and sorrow. But we can think on the other hand, too, conversely, there are so many unrighteous people in the world, right? So many wicked people who seem to get by in relative ease. And all of these are exhibits proving something that we should all be able to attest to. That something is deeply wrong in the world and that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Listen to these words from Psalm 90, the words of Moses. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What's that getting at? That life is cursed. All of our sighing, all of our grieving, all of the endless toils and troubles, even in the simple fact of death, reveals that life is cursed. Because the wrathful displeasure of God lies heavy upon the creation, its order, and its inhabitants. Us. Genesis 3 tells us why. How God had created a beautiful world of, of, of limitless goodness and beauty, but how it was changed and warped into what we know now, right? By the sin of Adam and of humanity in him, which came now and brought death for, for sin as it was warned to him. And now the created order, all of us, everything that we know is touched and tainted and warped deeply at its core then. Repl- fertility. Replaced with fatality. Fruitfulness giving way to futile results. There is something grievously wrong in the world. And you and I are suffering, either witnessed or or experienced firsthand, all the way from the deepest trauma to the seemingly common troubles of life. This is why. It's why God sometimes feels like an enemy. And Zion here, in her suffering under the Lord's wrath, illustrates this. See, Israel's story is like Adam's story. It's retold. People given life were blessed and placed in a land described very similarly to to Eden. They were given a privileged position as a son of God, as Exodus says, just like Adam. But then their sin came and wrecked it all. Ruined everything. And so that now in verse in, in chapter 2, verse 1 of Lamentations that we read there, un, that they were under wrath with dark clouds, people expelled from the land, signs of God's presence taken away. Doesn't that sound like Eden? Doesn't that sound like what happened to Adam, to humanity, to us at the beginning? Israel's history is our history. The history of Adam, the history is us. In fact, Lady Zion here is us. Her suffering is our suffering. It continues through history as a variation upon a theme. It brings brings her suffering then into our context. What you experience may not be the same, but her ruin is our ruin. And it all has the same root. It means that there's a solidarity in our suffering. Your pain may not be shared by others. But there's still a commonality. All of the pain, all of the hurts, all of the trauma we we know and feel and experience are symptoms of a fallen world. And all of that, everyone's, is worthy of lament. 
A child's dog dies. That's sad. That's worthy of lament. A parent is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's sad. It's worthy of lament. A black man is racially profiled. That is sad. It's worthy of lament. All of these things cry out that something is not right in this world. It is a world that has been brought under God's wrath. And friends, none of us are mere spectators. Not as we, not as we witness the fallen order of us. We can use her lament cries as our own. We share in the cursed world and it feels as if God's wrath is being poured out upon us. There may not be a temple anymore, but God can still feel far off. And dark clouds can still seem to hide his face from us. We're confronted by God's wrath. But what is the comfort? What's the comfort that we can have? That's the second point here. Comforting sufferers we want to look at. How do we comfort sufferers? Where does comfort come from? Verse 11, the right, the, we have a, a description of the writer walking among the ruins, looking at everything, seeing the suffering of the people in the streets there. And he looks at it all. What's he do? If you read it, he vomits. He vomits at the sight of the carnage, at the gut-wrenching sorrow, twisting his gut here. Does the suffering of others ever make you sick? Does seeing the pain in the world put your knots or put your stomach in knots? It did with Jesus. In the Gospels, all those times when it says he he felt compassion. Literally, in the original Greek language, it means he was moved in his bowels, in his guts. In an example, like in Matthew 9, 36, he looks out at the people who are, and he sees them as, as suffering, as people who are like sheep without a shepherd, and it wrenched his guts. He had compassion on them. He felt it down deep. Do you ever feel nauseated at seeing human suffering? It's a God-honoring response. Naturally, we want to fix it, we, or we want to make it better in some way. But we may not be able to fix the problem, but we still want to make it better. Right? If not relief, then provide comfort in some way. Verse 13, that's what the, the writer wants to do. He wants to move alongside Miss Zion's pain, move into it, but he's at a loss. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Zion? What can I liken to you? That I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion. He sees her anguish, but he can't relate. It's an anguish that he sees to a magnitude of no comparison, and he's speechless. He doesn't know what to say. He has no context for her sorrow. He doesn't even know how to say, it's going to be okay. And that's a common scenario for anyone who's ever tried to comfort someone, right? But a pain so great with wounds that are so deep, a type of sorrow so unfathomable, we don't know how to relate. And we feel helpless. There are two things for us to keep in mind, though. First, is that you may not know someone's pain firsthand, but you have solidarity in living with with them in a world of suffering. Solidarity in suffering, even if it's in different types. But second, though, is that comfort doesn't come through the depth of pain that you have felt. It comes through hope. You can't heal the suffering of another. 
And comfort doesn't come from you either. Healing can only come from the Lord. But what if he's the one who first brought the pain? That's what we have in the end of 13 there. For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Who can heal you? Well, the answer to that is the Lord. But he seems like the enemy, right? But God's not the enemy. Sin, suffering, that's the enemy. Remember, this isn't how things are supposed to be. Zion, who can heal you? Only he can. And he's not all wrath. He's also mercy. He isn't far from suffering. How do we know that? Because his son took wrath. His son suffered for our healing. The curse of the world was laid upon him. The wrath of God was poured into his bones. Who can, who can heal? The Lord God can. The Lord God, as we see in Jesus, his gut-wrenching compassion, his cross where he felt wrath. He felt the anger of God upon him. That's where he sets the world right by his resurrection, right? Altering the trajectory of the world from fallenness upwards to glory someday. Jesus shows us most clearly the heart of God. A God who's willing to suffer himself to heal us. Friends, does comfort come through solidarity? Well, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered more than, than any of his people ever will. Because he suffered the wrath for their sins. He knows death to its deepest degrees. He knows sorrow as hell. The hell of God was poured into his soul. And friends, because of that, he knows how to comfort as well. Isaiah 42 talks about him and he will not, it says, he will not break a bruised reed. The most tender shoot, he's not going to break it. He knows how to deal with it carefully. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Some of the most frail things he knows how to care for. He comforts because he knows suffering. He comforts because he brings healing. Does does God seem far off? Does God look like an enemy to you? Friends, look at the cross. God's not your enemy. He may seem like it in that time. But the cross... The resurrection proves that he is not your enemy. The Bible urges us to cry out, and we urge others to cry out, and we cry with them. Right? That's what we do with those who are lamenting and suffering. That's what we see with the writer in verses 18 and 19. He's urging her, cry out. Right? Let your tears stream down like a torrent. Right? Cry out in the night. Pour out your heart like water. Before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands up to him. For the lives of your children. Let your tears stream down. Wail for the suffering. Wail for all of what's been brought upon you. But wail with hope. What else can you appeal to? See comforting others in suffering and pain. Isn't from your experience. It's not from your shared pain. Comfort for those who are suffering is from the cross. And the words of the cross, the words of resurrection, those are helpful words that we need to hear. And make no mistake, there are helpful words in times of suffering that we can use to to comfort. And there are also unhelpful words. What are unhelpful words for people who are suffering? Well, false promises, right? Just as 
bad as false promises is misappropriated promises, right? Well, God's, God's, God's working according to his plan and everything is going to turn out great for you. Friends, that's a misappropriated promise. In the end, because of the glory of, of, of Revelation 21 and 22 that we heard, think, all things will work out for the good of God's people. But yet that doesn't mean that everything in your life right now will turn out just fine and dandy. There are unhelpful words, but what are the helpful words? It's the words of Jesus. It's the words of the cross. It's the words of the resurrection. It's the promises of his mercy coming down to meet sinners in the midst of their pain and sorrow and suffering. And those words of promise don't necessarily nullify the pain. But they serve as filters for our pain and allows us to hold on to the promise with clarity and with sincerity. And in darkness and suffering, it may seem that we have nothing from God. There seems to be that there may may not be no obvious benefit of holding to him because we've got nothing right now. But if we keep our eyes on the cross and the resurrection, then we are forced to reckon with God's character. And we begin to love God for himself and not just for the good times. Our dependence on other comforts, other things we may turn to instead, shrinks as we rehearse God's truth to ourselves over and over and over again. So the third point then, we want to look at actually the crying out to God. We're confronted with wrath. We have the, 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 the comfort, speaking words of comfort, but now it's crying out to God. And that's what we have at the end. It's the cry of Zion in verses 20 to 22. It's the voice of lament from Miss Zion to the Lord. Lord, look at us. Are these things right? What are you going to need to do about it? If you see us, will you rise up? Will you heal us? Will you bring it to an end? Laments feature questions that are posed to God. Is questioning him wrong? Well, it depends on why. It depends how. What would be wrong for questioning him? It would be doing so out of anger for anger's own sake. What would be wrong in questioning him would be, cur- or, uh, it would be cursing him. Right? Job's wife said, Job, curse God and die. Get it all over with. At the center of all this is, is me. It's us. It's putting ourselves first. But what's correct, though, correct in, in, in questioning is putting God at the center, asking why. Why, if this is consistent with your word and character? How does this all fit together, God? And so Zion points out the horrors. God, are you okay with this? Is it right that we see these things? Lament questions. That's the nature of complaint. And it knows that these things aren't how they're supposed to be. It questions the gap between promise and the situation. It questions that gap even with wailing, with tears, and with confusion. And it brings us again to look back at God through faith when we have nothing left but our pain. Friends, when was the last time that you lamented? That you truly lamented? That you truly cried out to God in this way? Perhaps some of us have never truly lamented like this because complaining seems irrelevant, because it seems irreverent, because we are accepting of things. Lament is a path to healing, though. 
Because when we are forced to lament, we are forced to also reckon with who God is in Jesus. I'd like to introduce you to a man named Jim, a real man. Uh, Jim is an acquaintance of mine I've gotten to know over the last several years. He's a ruling elder, actually, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, He's a counselor. Jim, though, also is very upfront with his story here. He's very open about it. Um, He's obviously shared it with a lot of people. uh, And he's also written uh, his story in an article uh, on a popular website also. But he's very upfront here. He has suffered great uh, uh, abuse in his childhood. From an early age, he felt same-sex attraction and gave himself over to it at a time in his life. And he has spent years and years of faking it, in his words. Fake it till you make it. And as he continued along this, it became untenable, and, it, and he withered and wilted here. And he writes in his article, Boundaries failed. People got hurt. Relationships crumbled. Eventually, I left the ministry then the church, and finally God. I was diagnosed as bipolar and depressed. I'd been disowned by my family. I gained a lot of weight. I smoked two packs of Marlboro Reds a day. I was agoraphobic and hadn't left my house in years. I essentially abandoned my dear wife. I had failed my sons. I proved myself useless, hopeless, helpless. He was literally minutes away from slitting his wrists. He, was, he had the razor blades next to him at the kitchen counter as he was writing his final instructions to his sons when his wife, who, who providentially was at a conference on grieving, came home early with a list of 40 things that he had never grieved before. And he goes on to write, So I began grieving that day for real. And I continue to this day. I thought Christians were supposed to forget what lies behind. But this was different. I recalled all the abuse, the put-downs, the bullying, the humiliation, along with all my faults and failings. That's when I realized Jesus could have stopped it all, but he didn't. He must have had something better in mind. Redemption. That's what he was planning for me. So that night, I became a morning person. Tears are for the evening, but joy comes in the morning. And he goes on to talk more about his lament, his mourning, his repentance, how all of that paved the way for hope and redemption because Jesus made his promises then more beautiful. Friends, have you lamented? Have you grieved? Have you cried out to the Lord for what has happened to you? Perhaps some of us have bottled up everything and we have never truly lamented. Lament acknowledges and cries for the wrong. And it brings us back to God and Jesus. If you know God and Jesus, you have every place to, to, and you have all the room to, to lament and to question. And you don't have to fear in doing so. His chest is big enough for you to bury your face in. Why are we made to suffer under your wrath? Why the pain of curse? There's no answer other than this. The invitation to know his mercy in deeper ways. Job 19.25, in the midst of his pain and suffering, he says, Yet I know this, my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Yes, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. 
So friends, cry out to him. He hears. He knows. He cares. He alone can heal with a healing that is far broader than a thousand cuts and deeper than the most bitter wound. Let's pray. Lord, things are not right in the world. All of us have our our own stories, either personal or ones that we've witnessed, of things that are not right. All of us have things to lament and grieve for. God, you know, and you hear, and you care. You are not our enemy. The words of the cross and of Jesus, that says more than anything else. Father, if there are those here this morning who have never grieved or lamented, Lord, give them the room to do so and meet them in your grace and speak words of redemption and hope to them. Prepare our hearts as we come to the, to the table where we receive that hope of redemption tangibly. In Jesus' name, amen.